If you'd keep your Bibles open to Mark uh, chapter 9, if you're not there. I need my glasses more and more every week, so I've got to make sure they're up here. Because every once in a while I look down and it's completely blurry. Um, I'd encourage you all to uh, make sure that we keep our masks on during the service. Um, you know, there are those here that count on that because they feel vulnerable. So to love them well, let's, uh, let's make sure we try to keep them on. I wanted to start this morning uh, by telling you about uh, soccer camp 1979. It was a, uh, a hot, sticky Illinois summer, and my parents dropped me off at Marmion Military Academy, where they were holding the soccer camp. And there I, I, I was with about 300 fifth and sixth grade boys staying in these barracks. And they, uh, they called us together that first night into the gym, and it was crazy in there. It was just mayhem with all these kids. So much so that even I was thinking, how are the... How are the coaches ever going to get, you know, control of this scene? But, uh, but they had a plan. Uh, suddenly, the, they, they put up on the screen uh, some highlights from the Chicago Sting soccer. They were the indoor soccer team. And Pato Marhetic, who was their leading scorer, was up there. They were just doing the highlights of his goals, incredible goals, one goal after another. And guys started to get quiet and watch. And then as that went off... Pato himself showed up, came up from up there, and we couldn't believe it. And then Pato challenged five soccer kids out of the stands to, to a game of soccer. They had a little goal there, and he just schooled, just dribbling through them, scoring at will. And it got very quiet. And then the coaches uh, started to break us into groups to have some dribbling and uh, shooting practice with Pato instructing you see, all it took to calm that crowd, to get our attention, was just one glimpse of Pato's glory. And we were all very attentive. And, and I bring this up because I think in a shallow way, it illustrates the situation in our, in our text this morning. See, last week we saw the disciples challenged with a serious paradigm shift. Jesus uh, informed them that he was going to the cross. He told them that he, he was going to have to be killed and rise after three days. And they, they should thus take up their cross and follow him. They should be willing to lose their lives for his gospel. This was kind of too big of, of a radical change for them, for their minds. That, Peter even began to rebuke Jesus and tell him he was wrong. They understood that Jesus was to be the Christ. Peter had just announced it. He was the Messiah, but they thought, okay, that means he's going to come. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to kick out the Gentiles. He's going to lead us to reign. So this cross stuff, this death stuff made no sense. It couldn't be right. So as we come to today's text... Jesus wants to encourage them to hear what he's saying, to listen. He wants them to see and engage with the cross, to see it fully, to see who, what he's about fully. You remember last week how Peter 
was kind of compared to the blind man who, when he saw, you're the Christ, he only saw trees walking and he needed more to engage with the cross. This week, it's like Jesus is going on to introduce that second touch of healing to help them see. That's what we have here with the transfiguration. It's this glimpse of Jesus' glory that they may see and understand about the cross. So look at uh, verse. Uh, look, look at chapter nine here, verse one, with me. And I just want to read the first few verses again. And he said to them, "Truly, I say to you, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God." after it has come with power. Now, let me stop there. Many say, okay, look, that doesn't make sense. I mean, Jesus is talking about when he's coming again uh, in power, that's going to be a long time away. How can the disciples who are present with him ever witness that? How does that work? Well, when you have that kind of question, just read on in the text because you're reading a framework on it right there. Actually, he's referring to the sneak peek of his kingdom power that's very imminent until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, that's some of them that were standing there with him, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiantly, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It's, it's an amazing scene. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And, and, and here's that kingdom power moment, isn't it? Not only, uh, not, not, it's not that as he's changed, that there's some essential change happening, but rather that kind of the inward nature of who he is begins to glow outwards. And he actually begins to glow white, hot. It's emanating right through his clothing. And of course... Moses and Elijah appear chatting with him, kind of a strange verse. Now to us, like I said, it's strange. The whole, the whole thing seems a little bit weird. But I think to the Jews, two things are very loud and clear here in this scene. First of all, power. Heavenly kingdom power. You see, pure white clothes throughout the scriptures represent heavenly king, kingly power. You can go back to the book of Daniel, when the, when the Ancient of Days comes, in Daniel 7, 9, he's clothed in pure white. This is God himself, and he has white hair, and he descends to a fiery white throne. In, later in Mark, when the angel comes to announce the resurrection, this heavenly being, what is he? It makes very clear that he's in pure white clothing. And then if you were here with us for the book of Revelation, you would have seen it uh, about every second chapter, just over and over and over again in the book, that the saints who had conquered, who had come through the tribulation, are dressed in pure white. They're given white robes. And when Jesus comes on his white horse, by the way, to judge, he comes with an army arrayed in white linen, his heavenly army, and then rises to his white throne. So now, for a brief moment, as Jesus' humanity, you know, the, the veil is kind of lifted and you see his true essence, what do we see? We see intense, 
blinding whiteness. It says, you know, whiter than any bleed, anything we could imagine here on earth, demonstrating absolute kingly power, divine power. This is the kingdom of God come in power moment. And you know, I remember talking about this with, with, uh, with Brian Hoke uh, years ago. And, uh, and we were saying, you know, I think this is why we see the response of the demons to Jesus the way it is in this book. What do the demons do in this book when they see Jesus? They freak out. They completely freak out, right? They don't see a mere carpenter from Nazareth or just a, a teacher. No, they see the spiritual realm because that's where they're from. They see this reality. They see this divine, crackling, white being shining, and it terrifies them. They say, go away from us. They say, don't destroy us. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. They fall down, they run. And now the disciples are getting a sneak peek of that reality to encourage them, to let them know that the way of the cross that Jesus is talking about and calling them to it's not ultimately about weakness and destruction, but it's actually the way of power and victory. And that's what it will be for them if they will trust him and follow him. I think this, this, this can be really hard to believe, especially as suffering comes their way, the disciples will struggle, and so do we. This is why the Apostle Paul says to the church later, he reminds them of this truth in, in 1 uh, Corinthians, right? The word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. What an encouragement this would have been for them. Think about that. Besides being terrifying, I think it would have been pretty encouraging. My dad uh, always would talk about, likes to talk about how when we were little and he would light off the fireworks on the 4th of July, the, his favorite thing was not the fireworks. It was to turn around and look at our faces, the kids' faces, and the delight as the fireworks were shining and we were just kind of terrified and excited all at the same time. And I kind of think of that. Think if we could see the disciples' faces in this moment. What an encouragement. What a motivation a peek at Jesus' divine, powerful glory. You would think that it would stick with them. And it's funny because you can read Peter's book in 2 Peter later when he talks about this very moment and what it meant. And I might read that later towards the end. But there's something else that I want us to see here. Not only does this moment reveal Jesus' divine power, and the, and, and, the, and the power of the way of the cross, but it reveals the divine plan of the cross, the sovereign orchestration of the cross from the very beginning. You see, at a simple level, Moses represents uh, the law. You see Moses, you know, appearing. And Elijah represents the prophets. So we have here both the law and the prophets. In a sense, you could say it sums up all the Old Testament teaching. 
is standing there with Jesus. They're witnessing and endorsing him. If the disciples are like, we don't know about this, well, here they are, the two big guys that represent everything. They're endorsing the plan of the cross that Jesus is lifting up. And it's been that way all along. I think this would be pretty reassuring, pretty confirming. Moses and Elijah standing with him. But I want us to see that it's more than that, I think. It's more than just, hey, everything in the Old Testament witnesses to this. I think what we see here is that this moment demonstrates that Jesus is not just in line with all the Old Testament, but he completes it. He and his cross work is the fulfillment, the finish, the crescendo of it all. And I want us to take a minute and I want us to trace it because I think Mark has been tracing it. So think about Moses for a minute, Moses who appears here. He was chosen by God to lead his people out of slavery. And then he led them through the sea and through the desert wanderings. And if you've been with us in Mark, you know that he's shown us, Mark is painstakingly showing us Jesus following the same pattern, right? That Jesus went into the the waters of baptism, just like they went into the sea. That he came out for 40 days in the desert, just like they went for 40 days in the wandering. That he fed his people in the desert, bread from heaven, just as Moses did. And then think of the rest of the story with Moses. After that time in the desert, he was taken up on a mountain. Sound familiar? And a cloud descended on the mountain. Sound familiar? And the Israelites were terrified. Sound familiar to this scene? And God spoke to Moses from the cloud. I even read in Exodus 24, 16 today that it was after six six days, just like it says here. And Moses descended from the mountain glowing. Sound familiar? See, Moses, as God's intermediary, brought God's word to the people. He was the original covenant giver, the lawgiver. God spoke through Moses to relate to his people. And he even had this secondary glow from being near the radiance of God. But the people were not faithful, and we know that Moses eventually died. But Deuteronomy 18 made a very interesting, there's a very interesting promise. It says, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that's Moses, Moses, from among your brothers, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God promises to send another prophet like Moses, a prophet to intercede for his people like Moses. And if they, what are they supposed to do when that prophet comes? They're supposed to listen to him or be judged. Well, we look forward. They look forward to that prophet. And eventually Elijah comes, doesn't he? This great prophet drawing people back to the law. And what happens with Elijah towards the end? It says in 1 Kings 19, we find him, actually we see him, on a mountain receiving revelation from God on the top of a mountain as he stands in his glorious presence. Yet he wasn't the one. He wasn't the Mosaic, promised Mosaic prophet. 
that they were looking forward to. Actually, it all comes to the day that's now arrived as Jesus stands atop this mountain talking to these two great figures. He's not only endorsed by their presence as being in line with the Old Testament, he's even more than that. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus isn't just the fulfillment of all the prophets, right? That's what they said in 828. Oh, He's another prophet. No, He's much more than that. He's the very Son of God. He's the final word. Peter wanted to build three tents there, didn't he? Because he saw them all kind of on the same level. Because, but, what happened? The cloud went away, and so did Moses and Elijah, and only Jesus was left. They faded into the background because he is the fulfiller of everything that they were about. The law, the sacrifices, the mediation of the word. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And he doesn't glow with a secondary radiance. He radiates white hot light from the inside out as the very glory of God himself, the fullness, the finality. He's just not just a new prophetic word, he's the final word. That's why I had Hebrews read, right, where he says, in these last days, you've had all the prophets, but the final word comes, and what does it say? And he's the radiance, the exact radiance of God. The disciples, like the soccer camp boys in Pado, but a million times over, have been given this incredible glimpse into the true glory of Jesus as the powerful, victorious Son of God and the divine fulfiller of the plan of salvation. Why? Why do they get this? This is probably the most obvious point of the text. Why? So they will listen to him. So they will listen to him about the cross that he's going to it, that it's the way they must follow. So they will deny themselves and take up the cross and follow. So they'd be willing to lose their life for his sake in the gospel and be saved. So they will believe that as Jesus goes to the cross, he is not conceding in weakness, he is ascending in power to his very throne to bring his kingdom. This is the great moment of the kingdom of God and power. When are they going to see it? They get a peek of it here. Fully, you'll see it fully at the cross. And that's the truth. That's what we have to believe about the cross. Or we will never have the stamina to follow. And I wanted to kind of park here for a minute and think about what the Bible says was achieved by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. These are some things the Bible says. Death was swallowed up in victory. All principalities and dominions were overcome. The power of the devil was defeated. The record of our sin, past, present, and future was canceled. The perishable was transformed into the imperishable. The dividing wall of hostility between peoples was brought down. The curtain that separated our holy God from true fellowship with his people was torn in two. 
Jesus' followers were transferred from the kingdom of evil into the kingdom of God. Salvation was won and can now be freely proclaimed with the forgiveness of sins. And we can now live by the very power of God as his spirit is in us. This is the power and the victory of the cross. This is the kingdom of God and power. Come. So the question is, will the disciples listen to Jesus? Will they see his glory and trust his call to cross-centered, cross-driven lives? And it's really the question for us. We need this exhortation. Even though we may talk about the cross all the time, we need this exhortation. You know why? First of all, I think because we're just like Peter. Look at Peter here. What does he do in response to this mountaintop scene? Does he say, I see it, Jesus. I got it. I see you are, I see the cross, I see what it's about. I will follow you wherever you will go. I, I will give my life. I will suffer for you in the sake of your, your gospel. Count me in. Now, what does he do? He says, hey, let's set up camp. So he says, let's set up camp. This will be great. He's scared and confused, but he loves it. Look at verse 5. It says, and as they were talking, see, oh, and Peter said to them, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He wants to bask in it right now. In a way, he's kind of right, right? He thinks, hey, in the Old Testament, they had the tent, the tabernacle, and the Shekinah glory came, so we'll, we'll set up the tent and it'll and, and stay. But he's got it all wrong. He wants to just stay in that moment. And as much as we like to kind of go, wow, Peter, he's, he's always messing up. The truth is about Peter, what comes out of his mouth is what most of us are really thinking or wishing. This is what we want. We want a costless, comfortable Christianity, one in which we can just sit back and camp with God's people and bask in the glory. You know, can't we just sing songs and read theological books and and enjoy deep thoughts about God and enjoy the blessed Christian life and live in victory, mountaintop Christianity right now? No, we can't. There is a cross mission we're called to. Yet this kind of Christianity that, that wants to put aside that mission is peddled all through all all throughout our society, all through our pulpits, all through our Christian broadcasting. Christianity that's all about blessing and glory now with no cross-bearing. We must remember that this is a glimpse. It's a peek into the glory that the cross will achieve that will be fully revealed on his return. And that we are supposed to be about the cross now and the crown and the glory later. This is just a glimpse and it must be this way. That's why it says in 831 that the Son of Man must suffer. It's the divine necessity word. 
Sure, it'd be nice if it was different, right? If I was the planet, I would say, couldn't it be different? Couldn't God just come right away in his full glory, set up his kingdom? Whoa. Set up his kingdom. That is what the Jews were looking for. And then prophets and preachers could point to him and everybody repent and everybody apologize and it's one big glory party. It can't be that way, unfortunately. We must listen to Jesus. He must go to the cross and our lives must be cross-shaped. Why? Because the situation is so dire. If we don't understand this, not only do we not understand the cross, we don't understand our world. We're going to see this fully in the next chapter when they head down into the dark valley. The disciples are confronted with the dire situation of our world that demands cross lives. But we do start to see it as our text ends in a little way. As they head down the mountain, starting in verse 9, right, they begin to send after this scene. It's an interesting dialogue and conversation, isn't it? They're coming down the mountain, and Jesus says, hey, don't talk about this till after the resurrection. You know why he says that? Because he knows that's when their eyes will be fully open. He knows they don't have a clue yet. And then they start saying, well, wait a minute. If you're bringing in the kingdom, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And Jesus says, yeah, that's true, actually. And he says, what about the predictions about the suffering of the Son of Man? What about those? And then he says this to them. But I tell you, that Elijah has come, this is verse 13, and they did to him whatever they please as is written of him. You know what that means? Elijah did come, and you killed him. See, Elijah, that was John the Baptist. Mark's made that very clear in this book. He came in the same clothing, camel's hair and locusts and honey. That was all Elijah language. He came out of the desert like Elijah. He called him to repentance like Elijah. And if you think I'm making that up, just go read Matthew 17.10 where it actually says it's in. Elijah came and they killed him. They killed him. The reason it must be the way of the cross is because the greatest prophet of all could come to call people back and they kill him. The greatest prophet and preacher, John the Baptist, came to turn people's hearts back to God, but ultimately they killed him. You see, a preacher is never enough to bring the kingdom of God in power, to change people's hearts, to really solve the problem. I love that John the Baptist said that when he came. He goes, hey, man, I just baptized with water. I'm just sprinkling water on you. You need one who will come to baptize with fire, with the Holy Spirit. He could preach, but he couldn't open eyes. You see, people haven't just lost their way and need a, a, a director to come and show them back to the way. They kill the director. Why the cross? Why this radical solution as the only way? Because our sinful rebellion against God has created such a dark situation that we cannot be reconciled to God and we will not be reconciled to God no matter what the prophet 
or the preacher says something must be done for us, something by God himself, something of divine power and divine sacrifice. So this call, the call of this text, it comes to us. This is my son. Listen to him. And that's the question. Are we listening to him? Are we living cross lives? There's so much noise out there today, you guys, calling on our lives. Supposed new prophets from Joseph Smith to Muhammad to, to guys within the Christian church develop, declaring themselves prophets with a new word. No, Jesus is the final word. And he says, take up the cross and follow me. There's new Christian teaching out there that's all about promise and blessing and power. But Jesus, the white, hot, radiating God himself, says, lose your life for me and my gospel. When you look at your life and you honestly ask what you're doing with it, what's directing you, I want to ask you to ask this question, who told you that? Who told you that? That that's what your life should be about? That that's the direction you should be going in? Who told you? Was it talk radio? Was it cable news? Was it some book? No, this is my son. Listen to him. It's amazing, you know. People tend to think, man, if I just had that moment, if I was just on that mountain and I heard that voice from God, or I heard an actual voice from God, then I would listen. Do you know what Peter says as he reflects on this very moment in his book later? I just want to read this to you as we close. This is what he says. I'll put my glasses on. <laughs> For we did not follow cleverly devised Miss when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And this is what he says. And we have something more sure. Than that voice from heaven, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, you know what? You have a better word about Christ today because it's right here written down. This is my son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown us in your word the glory and the power of your Son. May we listen. 
May we have our lives directed on the path of the cross that others may be saved. May we not be sidetracked by all the voices around us that are trying to make it easier. But may we love you as we obey your Son.